Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and, uh, and uh, I apologize for the slight delay, but the rain has, has delayed a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of people, so some more will be coming in as well. The right to privately own and use property has been a central feature in the rise of the modern world and in the explosion of wealth and the creation of the, the rule of law. Uh, over the past couple of centuries in the countries that we now that we call uh, rich. A distinguishing characteristic of underdevelopment is the absence of secure or any uh, property rights. In the past couple of decades, a consensus has formed among development economists and other experts about the importance of recognizing and protecting the property of poor people around the world. Yet, despite this widespread acknowledgement, including among developing country governments, the majority of poor people's land and property uh, around the world are not recognized or protected by legal title, thus inhibiting wealth creation, secure investment, the use of credit, the spread of the formal productive uh, economy, and other significant social benefits. Likewise, human rights activists have long downplayed or even denigrated property rights, despite it being identified for centuries as fundamental by leading uh, political philosophers, and despite property rights being a part of the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It is worth asking why the recognition of this aspect of poor people's rights has taken so long in so many places, uh, but some trends may be starting to change. In particular, with respect to the historically uh, tricky political issue, of governments' relations with indigenous people. In both poor countries and rich countries, indigenous people have historically received deplorable or unfortunate treatment, often enshrined in law, from uh, their governments. Wrong-headed or hostile policies have violated or weakened the land rights of indigenous people, exposing them to poverty and other precarious conditions. As we will hear today, this is starting to slowly change. In Australia, for example, the Aboriginal people have received title to their land, and the new Human Rights uh, Commissioner, whom we are honored to host on this panel, is forcefully reminding the world uh, that property rights are human rights, and he is advocating that those titles come with the full rights of usage that other Australians enjoy, but that indigenous Australians are still denied. We will also hear about how legal and other developments around the world are devolving property rights to local and indigenous people. Our speakers uh, will di discuss the extent to which this renewed emphasis on rights holds promise in helping to reduce poverty, to reduce conflict, to discourage land grabs, improve governance, and manage natural resources, and on and on. So let me uh, introduce then Australia's Human Rights Commissioner, uh, Mr. Tim Wilson. Again, I'm very pleased to, to host him today. He's dubbed in, in Australia as the Freedom Commissioner for his passionate defense of universal individual human rights. Prior to being uh, the commissioner, he has been a public policy analyst and a policy director at the Institute of Public Affairs, which is the world's oldest uh, free market think tank. He has also worked in trade and communication consulting, international aid and development, as well as politics. He has published extensively in newspapers and journals. The Australian newspaper recognized him as one of the ten emerging leaders of, Aust of Australian society, 
and he recently co-edited a book called Turning Left or Right, Values in Modern Politics. Please help me welcome Tim Wilson. Well, thank you very much, Ian, for that very kind introduction. Uh, I wrote it myself. Um, it's a great pleasure, of course, to be here at one of the great beacons of liberty in the world, being the Cato Institute. I formerly worked at the Institute of Public Affairs, which is a, the world's oldest free market think tank, uh, founded in 19, um, uh, 1943. And uh, we are a great advocate, or the organisation which I'm still a member but don't work for, is a great advocate for individual liberty in Australia and people's rights and freedoms and their right to pursue their lives uh, as they see fit. Um, but no one's under any illusion in the work that they do and other institutions like uh, the Institute of Public Affairs do is that we look to the United States often for um, intellectual guidance uh, and a contribution to public debate. And the Cato Institute is always squarely in our minds in thinking about the important issues that need to be addressed. And of course, I can't think of an issue that needs more attention around the world, particularly when we're talking about uh, driving the fundamental challenges that uh, continue to plague societies around under um, that undermine liberties than the importance of reasserting the primacy of property rights as part of the human rights discussion in the interests of everybody. And I, uh, as Human Rights Commissioner, made that one of my priorities on appointment and uh, have continued to progress that discussion as much as anything else as part of our broad discussion around basic rights and liberties in 21st century Australia, but also across the world. And the way we've done that is by looking at the, uh, uh, the broader discussion around human rights uh, and fitting it within that context of basic rights of the individual, and then looking at opportunities to discuss the importance of property rights generally, but trying to anchor it in a discussion that people understand, uh, and particularly to highlight the human consequences that occur when property rights are denied. And of course, that is nowhere clearer than in the situation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have a common law uh, title of land, which fundamentally gives them very few rights to allow them to economically develop their title and improve their human condition. And that has obviously direct human consequences in terms of uh, their wealth, their opportunity to enjoy higher standards of living, uh, but also undermines the potential to get jobs and everything else that flows from it. But one of the key debates that I've had to have is the importance of property rights as part of that human rights discussion. And I find it very odd that it even needs to be asserted, though I'm sure many in the people in this room would take exactly the same attitude because I uh, fondly remind people that if you take the, uh, the international treaty aspect of human rights, Article 17 of the Universal Declaration said that everybody has, that ev everyone has the right to own property alone as well as in association with others and that nobody should be arbitrarily deprived of their property. Um, uh, and that, that basic theme has been lost by many of human rights activists, as I would argue too many people these days confuse human rights with issues of social justice, and as a consequence, property, rather than being seen as an advancement of human rights and underpinning the rights of the individual and a reflection of people's earned labour, is 
becoming an issue or, or seen as a barrier because it's seen as a form of unjust takings by private individuals rather than being seen as the benefit that it provides to society overall. And of course, the root and the contribution of private property has a long history in terms of the relationship with the Magna Carta, uh, where there was that Great Charter of 1215 established the very clear principle that a person's property can't simply be seized without some form of compensation. We have a similar reflection in our Australian constitution around takings by the government. It has a long entrenched uh, relevance in uh, classical liberal political philosophy, where we saw people like John Locke uh, cultivate the simple idea that property rights are part of the human rights discussion, um, because in his second treatise, uh, Locke argued the moral case everybody and every man has over his property and his person and the labour of his body and the work of his hands, may we say, are property his. And that from that, people get to value add their contributions to the earth and enjoy a higher standard of living. And that, that the direct denial of property is akin to denying someone uh, the reward for their labours. And when you actually have a system of title that doesn't exist, you, of course, see uh, the consequences of that. And that has been a work of exploration by uh, such key thinkers, of course, as the Peruvian economist Hernando de Soto, who demonstrated the harsh consequences of what can occur when property rights are absent in his groundbreaking book, The Mystery of Capital, and of course, much of his subsequent work, um, that property rights actually have a critical basis in terms of economic development, particularly when it's tied with other things like finance uh, to enable people to achieve a higher standard of living. So in Australia, we have a very significant challenge where Indigenous people uh, over 200 years have been denied access to their land and, uh, as a consequence of European settlement. During that process, uh, there has been continual efforts to uh, secure that land by Aboriginal activists, uh, looking at opportunities through courts and legal processes to have full recognition of their traditional lands. Uh, in uh, the 1970s, there was significant progress towards establishing a title in some parts of our country under a Land Rights Act. But in terms of other lands existing in our states and it's part of our federalist structure, the same principles did not exist with the same degree of flexibility. And it wasn't until the 1990s through uh, a significant case in the equivalent of our Supreme Court, the High Court, that recognised a form of common law native title that gave back Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people control of their land, uh, at least at a superficial level, that they were able to secure some form of title. But since then, both through a legislative process as well as through courts, there's been a diminishing in the role and importance of that title to the point where it really is a superficial right. It has no significant um, capacity to be used and utilised uh, for economic development. It has an enduring cultural value. It has an enduring um, uh, uh, contribution towards Aboriginal heritage, and that is the superficial right that exists above it. But when you go to the capacity for it to be used by, for purposes of economic development, it's not so straightforward. Um, the law doesn't simply allow it, and equally cultural values that sit behind Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's attitudes towards their land, particularly around collective governance arrangements, means that you have a situation where land is not fully utilised. So as Human Rights Commissioner, one of my key uh, tasks is working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to seek constructive reform that recognises and respects the enduring cultural connection 
that they have to their, their land, but also to enable it as a, a, a key contribution uh, towards uh, their economic development. And that requires taking them as much as anything else on a journey, because after a long period of land rights battles, understandably, they're very wary of the risks that can occur when you have a form of title and expose it to uh, uh, using, say, for instance, the basis of security for raising finance and capital so that they're able to achieve development. In the past, they've uh, avoided those risks by simply bringing in external parties, particularly through um, mining interests and the like, who develop their land in their place, which means they're able to preserve title and create revenue streams but it doesn't mean that they are in the same position to be able to do what they want with their land. And in fact, you know, in terms of law and practice, it's actually easier for somebody like myself to develop their land than it is for uh, them as individual people. Uh, so there's a really significant need to have a discussion about how uh, they're able to do that. And at the start of this year, we had a big meeting in Broome, which is in the northwest of our country in May, that brought together the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership of Australia to start that conversation. And it's been a very interesting conversation that we've had because what uh, Indigenous leaders have consistently raised with us is, I would argue, a very clear parallel between the issues they face and a broad libertarian philosophy, particularly around issues of excessive regulation that undermine their self-determination and actually amounts to entrenching poverty because they are not able to do what they land in the same way that exists with statutory titles, such as the one that sits uh, and underpins the title on my own home or any other type of uh, ordinary property that exists in Australia. We also have significant challenges around taxation arrangements that impose huge bills on them for land that they've never had the opportunity to develop. And to put that into perspective, if you haven't been able to uh, develop your land over a period of 200 years, yet you're expected to immediately meet the financial cost of 21st century taxation and regulation, it has a fundamentally, fundamentally deleterious impact. And that's particularly important in terms of environmental regulation. In the northern part of our country, at a place called uh, Cape York in the great state of Queensland, uh, there have been significant overlays that have been put, environmental overlays over people's land, uh, which has basically meant they're not able to use it for any sort of extractive industries or primary uh, industries, particularly in the forestry sector for where it is very rich. Um, so the opportunity to be able to use that land to be and its natural assets to achieve economic development is significantly curtailed in a way that somebody like myself uh, or, or the rest of Australia has not had the same restrictions over a long period of time. And that, of course, has the direct impact of undermining their right to development. But there are still also significant legal restrictions that stop land being used as the basis of equity to raise the capital to be entrepreneurial. And it often astonishes me how much people like myself and uh, others in, uh, in Australian society need to be reminded how much of our economic development is underpinned by the capacity to use that basic form as title as a basis to raise capital. And from there to be able to use it to invest in their future and create new opportunities. So in our significant meeting in May in Broome, we brought together Indigenous leaders to talk about how we start to resolve some of these fundamental challenges looking at the importance of flexible legal instruments to enable communities to use their title as they see fit, including with different ownership structures that also meet 
their needs. The need also to develop complementary new business models that ensure finance can be raised and that risk can be priced so communities can build their economic opportunities and fundamentally integrate them in the rest of the market economy in a way that they're currently denied. It's essentially an issue of unequal access to capitalism and mechanisms to raise finance for the development of housing and ownership. Because not only through the collective arrangements are people denied the opportunity to be able to raise finance, but also to be able to access the basic security necessary to then go on to build private homes and ownership. And from there, of course, it doesn't just undermine them in a collective sense, it also undermines them in an individual sense. That, of course, opens up a huge Pandora of cultural attitudes uh, that need to be discussed and recognised amongst Indigenous communities. Because in the past, uh, their attachment, rightly so, has been to a sense of collective identity and also survivalism that comes from collective identity about the preservation of their culture and their heritage and their way of life prior to white settlement of this country. So what we've started isn't just a conversation uh, amongst Indigenous leaderships about the importance of the issues that sit outside of them and are regulated by government, but also started a conversation within Indigenous communities about how they're going to manage their collective affairs in the future particularly how we recognise the need for individual entrepreneurialism in the framework of collective, discuss uh, collective governance discussions and how that then has an on-flow effect around pricing risk and dealing with the various challenges that exist when you're working with other parties, say, for instance, financial institutions that want to be able to lend capital to be able to develop their land, particularly where it has particular value. And I say particular value because it's not just in the desert. In many cases, you have titles sitting across some of the most uh, beautiful beaches in our country, uh, which are ripe for opportunities for ecotourism, well, tourism generally, but of course, the narrative is uh, uh, culturally sensitive and environmentally sensitive tourism uh, to create opportunities for uh, employment uh, and development uh, across Australia's Indigenous communities. There's also, of course, a huge potential in many rural and regional and remote communities to develop opportunities for mining and extractive industries, as well as, uh, as many other uh, sectors such as agriculture. When we started this conversation, uh, there was, of course, a significant buy-in of Indigenous communities because they became acutely aware of how much the denial of the freedom to exercise their property rights was undermining the potential of their own communities, but are now deeply allies very closely with the objectives of our own government because as a nation, it's becoming increasingly aware that the, uh, the role and the title holdings of Indigenous communities is so large uh, that it has a direct financial and economic impact on the rest of our nation. And uh, if we want to see uh, the sort of industries that can grow and create the opportunities for the next generation of Australians, uh, uh, whether Indigenous or not, we need to take advantage of our natural assets. Now, that runs into enormous challenges domestically with environmental groups and various other groups who often want to see Indigenous communities uh, uh, preserved in what they would argue is their natural habitat and their natural culture and natural attitudes. And that is part of the discussion that we need to keep driving forward because it is not acceptable for uh, Indigenous communities to be held against their will in a time warp of economic poverty because it suits the interests of wealthy people in capital cities. 
there has to be a process of reform which recognises their ambition to realise their dreams and a process of reform that he supports that, but built on a full integration into a market economy. And that is where we're working as uh, uh, the Human Rights Commission, as Human Rights Commissioner in partnership with Indigenous communities uh, to not just advance the contribution of property rights, but the role of uh, Indigenous people in part of the market economy to achieve their better aspirations. Uh, and I think we're going to be a much better nation for it. I'll leave my comments there and very much look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. It's now my pleasure to introduce Carol Boudreau, who is the Cloudburst Group's Land Tenure and Resource Rights Practice uh, Lead. And among other things, she provides oversight for uh, several of their pro programs, one of them being the Mobile Applications to Secure Tenure Project. She might discuss that in the discussion uh, part, which is an innovative approach to, to secure title. Uh, she is a lawyer and a land tenure and resource rights expert with two decades of experience in the field and also as a researcher. She's conducted field research in 10 African countries and has published more than 30 articles and a major uh, monograph on property rights. She has uh, served as USAID's Africa land tenure specialist. She has been an instructor and an assistant dean of George Mason University's School of Law, and she serves on the advisory council of the ABA's Business and Human Rights Working Group, among other uh, appointments. Please help me welcome Carol. Thank you, Ian. It's a, always a pleasure to be at the Cato Institute. Um, I want to start by saying when I looked up Tim Wilson the other day on Twitter, uh, it said, Australia Human Rights Commissioner, period classical liberal, period. I was so taken aback. <laughs> I immediately went uh, and shared that bit of information inside the family. Like, can you believe it? The Australian <laughs> Human Rights Commissioner is a classical liberal. So what a great pleasure it is to be on a panel with Tim and, and to have been invited by Ian, uh, who's also an old friend. So I'm going to pick up the conversation and talk with you in very, pretty rapidly in 15 minutes about how legal, social, and technology developments around the world um, are increasingly devolving property rights to indigenous and local communities. And, and as Ian hinted at, there really is a shift going on. And it's a very important shift to recognize the rights of local communities and indigenous peoples. It's not the sort of thing that's happened overnight, not by a long shot. There have been um, changes happening now for decades. And so we're going to talk about a couple of those. Um, it is the case that international guidance, national legal frameworks, jurisprudence um, are all contributing to improve the recognition of these rights on the ground and to give local peoples, whether they're indigenous or, or just local communities who live under a customary legal system, more opportunities to use, benefit from, exclude others from the use of lands that they themselves have traditionally occupied. Um, the rights really grow out of long-standing customary claims that are increasingly being enforced, whether it's in regional human rights courts or in national courts. And there actually is a case at the International Criminal Court right now related to land rights violations in the country of Cambodia. 
So being recognized at regional courts, international courts, as well as at um, in national courts. And I want to talk for a minute about these customary claims, because I think especially in an audience like a Cato audience, this is a very important issue for us to talk about for at least a moment. The customary claims of indigenous peoples and, and local peoples um, represents the law that they have evolved over the course, in some cases, of millennia, not decades, but millennia, to address their needs in their environment. It's enforced by their judges and dispute resolvers and accepted by their members. It is spontaneously grown law that is unplanned in the sort of sense we might think about it in a Cato audience. It is decentralized, and it stands in contrast to the centrally planned legislation that unfortunately governs, in a formal sense, most indigenous and customary laws. It reflects local knowledge of conditions and desired end goals of the communities who've created the law. It is Hayekian law in a very important sense. And too often, again, to be repetitive briefly, because I think this is an important point, too often this Hayekian customary law is constrained by the centrally planned formal legal systems that have been imposed on customary communities. Okay, so we're gonna talk for a few minutes about how the trend to recognize customary claims to land and property has been changing and what the consequences may be, not only for indigenous peoples, but I think Every bit is important for the private sector, private sector companies that work with many indigenous communities and for governments on the ground. It's important, again, because customary and indigenous communities live today, most of them, on government-controlled land, subject to the kind of heavy burdensome regulation in some countries uh, that Tim talked about just a moment ago. So, so a question for folks either in the development community or in national governments or among indigenous peoples themselves is, how can that situation change? How can local peoples themselves exert more control over the resources that they've lived with for a very long time? How can they make decisions about how to use the forest resources or an increasingly important resource, the water resources or the mineral resources, the oil and gas that exists on their lands. Um, a report came out yesterday at the same time that we're talking about this issue. There is a very big meeting going on in Bern, Switzerland, uh, discussing community and indigenous land rights. And yesterday, the Rights and Resources Initiative, based here in DC, issued a report that said as much as 65% of the world's land is managed by customary systems. But less than 18% of that land is actually has actually rights to manage it have actually been devolved down to local peoples, meaning the vast majority of customary lands are still managed by governments, which puts these communities at risk of dispossession if they are not able to state formalized claims to their land. It means they are at risk of not receiving just and fair compensation in eminent domain proceedings because they don't have the basis to, to make an eminent domain uh, claim. It means they may lose ancestral lands that are deeply valuable to them. They have deep cultural and spiritual uh, meaning, as Tim talked about just a moment ago. They don't have the power to engage in decision-making about their lands and their resources, and they lack, this means, an important component of autonomy, an issue that should be, I think, important to most of us. Um, and because decision-making over their resources is centralized, it means that power and authority is more easily abused and misused. 
Um, so decentralizing control over land and other valuable natural resources that indigenous and other communities live with may have some important uh, benefits for folks who are interested in classical liberal principles. Number one, decentralizing this authority should break up some political power by shifting control down to local levels. It does not mean that local communities today necessarily have the, the skills and capacity they would like to have to effectively manage those resources, but it would mean that rather than having one person sitting in a capital city or a small group of people sitting in a capital city making decisions about how to use resources, people themselves, local people, would have more involvement in that decision-making process. Um, it would mean that there should be more and better opportunities for economic engagement and entrepreneurship, as Tim also mentioned, by devolving control of resources down to a local level. And it may be that devolving the control of these resources to a local level actually leads to improved environmental outcomes. Um, it certainly would shift the incentives of local people about how they engage with and use the resources that they've claimed as their own for a very long time. So, so how is this challenge of devolving rights over land and other valuable resources being addressed? I'm going to very quickly talk about three developments. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that law is changing on this, on this point. Uh, Tim mentioned uh, Article 17 of the um, Universal Declaration, which does recognize the rights to property. Other international documents do as well. For example, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, the CEDAW Convention, also recognizes the right to property. In the US last year, we passed the Girls Count legislation. Uh, the Girls Count legislation um, implore, uh, asks uh, the United States government through its various agencies, development agencies and otherwise, to recognize the rights, the property rights, of girls and women in its international development activities. Um, the UN DRIP, which is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, is a non-binding piece of international uh, law, but one that um, guides people, guides uh, states, and, and increasingly guides private sector in its activities. And then, over the last 20 years, a number of nations growing list of nations have changed their legislative framework to allow for the recognition of customary and indigenous rights. But what I want to talk about briefly is a landmark decision that came out of Canada's Supreme Court last year. Are there any Canadians in the room? OK, so I can mangle the name. Apologies ahead of time. This is the Silcotin case uh, that was issued in June of 2014 from the Canadian Supreme Court that found for the first time upheld a claim of indigenous, excuse me, aboriginal title in Canada. Uh, coming out of the British, uh, the, the British Columbia province in Canada. It was a very interesting case that started way back in 1983. So you can see when I say indigenous land rights are not an issue that suddenly sprung to the fore. This is a case that has been boiling around in, in, Aus, in uh, Canada's courts for a very long time now. Uh, there are a number of small semi-nomadic tribes in the central part of British Columbia who were really unhappy when the British Columbian government um, issued a logging license to a company uh, on, to, to harvest timber on uh, indigenous lands. And at first, the tribes involved uh, asked for a declaration to stop the logging. The British Columbian government did not accede to that declaration. Uh, in the early 1990s, they filed a lawsuit asking for recognition of both their aboriginal title. This would be a title that would give them more exclusive rights to control their resources, as well as stopping the logging. Finally, last year, the Supreme Court agreed with a very lengthy, very interesting trial court decision that found that this, these small set of tribes actually did have rights 
over 1,700 square kilometers of land in central British Columbia. It would give them exclusive rights. Canada is a, a little bit of a different environment from the US, and I'm, I'm much less familiar with Australia. But some native tribes have entered into treaties with the Canadian government that changed the way their property rights would be managed. But there are a great number of areas and many, many um, communities who have not entered into treaties with the Canadian government. And so we're in an interesting situation where if they can actually prove that they have aboriginal title to land, if the claim is successful, they would actually get increased control over the lands themselves. Um, so this is what happened in the Silcotan case, and now Canada's trying to decide, what does this mean for us? Now, for the first time, uh, a tribe that is semi-nomadic, that has not stayed in one place, but's moved around, and has not had intensive use of one area, but has had maybe extensive use over a wide area of land where they've fished, hunted, um, lived for a very long time, now they have exclusive rights to the land. It, it sounds maybe a little bit better than it, than it um, will turn out to be in practice for the indigenous communities, because they will still be subject to the kind of regulation Tim was talking about. So it's still the case that generally applicable Canadian law um, is something that these, this tribe, this set of tribes will have to follow. So environmental laws, for example, will still, be, will still have force and effect, even over aboriginal title lands. Um, but nonetheless, it means that businesses and the government have a much more intensive obligation now to consult with and gain consent from tribes that have aboriginal titles for activities that happen on their lands. And that's an important thing because it does shift that issue of autonomy down to the community level. And how communities will use their enhanced autonomy remains to be seen. And again, they will probably need some assistance to engage in things like negotiations. But it means that the power shifts from government actors really down to private actors. I want to talk about um, one last thing before I tie up, and that is the changes that I see going on in the social sector. And, and I maybe I'll sh leave the technology stuff for Q&A. I'd love to talk about that. And Robert Bergenthal is here also, so we can call on Robert maybe to speak to that just a little bit. On the social side, I see that the largest, I think I see this, the major impact around the recognition of indigenous and customary land rights, um, the major actor who's going to have to deal with this is the private sector. So it is true that governments, as they devolve rights over land and other resources down to communities, lose some revenue streams, potentially, and lose some ability to control, potentially, what happens on these areas. And that's important to governments. But what's also really important is that increasingly private sector actors, major multinational corporations, are um, voluntarily and increasingly through legislation, having to recognize the land and resource rights, especially of indigenous peoples, through things like the United Nations Guiding Principle on Business and Human Rights, which more and more companies are, are recognizing, um, through things like the voluntary guidelines on the responsible governance of land, uh, land fisheries and forests, um, a new piece of international soft law that makes very strong statements about indigenous and customary land rights, um, and through things like the IFC's performance standard, especially standard number seven, which provides uh, guidance on how businesses that receive financing from the IFC must engage with indigenous communities. And the way you must engage is through a process of FPIC, free prior and informed consent, which means that if you want to engage with indigenous and local communities to, let's say, harvest timber or to mine areas or to engage in large agribusiness, before you enter into, before your operations start up, you are supposed to go through a very careful due diligence process that involves gaining the consent 
of these communities to your activities. I should note that the U.S. government does not interpret FPIC to mean free prior and informed consent. The U.S. government in, uh, interprets FPIC to mean free prior and informed consultation. Um, but think about it. If you're a private sector company and you've been dealing with the government for, oh, low these many years, and now suddenly you have to deal with indigenous and local communities, um, you face a very different equation, you face very different kinds of transactions costs, and, and frankly, you may have trouble figuring out how that engagement actually should work and how much engagement is enough engagement. So right now I see a lot of, tr a lo a lot of questioning and discussion around how much engagement is enough engagement? What does it mean for us as, a private, as the private sector to engage with these communities? How do we pull these stakeholders in so that we, we lessen some of our risk profile and we lessen some of the costs that we're facing because costs and risks are really driving the private sector's willingness to engage with these communities because it has been very difficult for some private sector companies to carry forward their mining activities or to carry forward their agribusiness activities or to carry forward their timber activities because local people don't always want them there. Sometimes communities do welcome development. That's a wonderful thing. But other times communities who are, have, feel like they've been left out of the development equation do not welcome private sector investment. And here's the challenge for us. We would like to see more communities enter into voluntarily beneficial engagements with the private sector so that they can experience economic growth in ways they would like to experience that growth. So the challenge for us moving forward is how, on the one hand, do you help indigenous and local communities who may lack some of the capacity they need, whether it's around negotiation or whether it's around valuation, to enter into conversations with the private sector so that they can become partners in a very in a very transparent, beneficial way with private sector who have so much potential, good potential to bring to these communities in terms of improving infrastructure, improve, in terms of transferring knowledge, in terms of br um, bringing economic opportunity. How do we do that and help indigenous communities at the same time? How do we help the private sector to understand what good due diligence actually looks like and means? Um, so that they can, again, lower their risk profile, lower some of the costs that are associated with doing business with indigenous communities in a, in a respectful way on the ground. And then for some countries, how can we help countries and governments understand um, how is it possible to, or, or why is it, you almost need to do the business case for the governments as well. What's the business case for devolving the rights down to the communities? What is the government going to get because the government gives something up and it's always really hard to get folks to give up power. But that's the great challenge in the opportunity. Sorry. Right? We all know that's true. And if we don't, you should watch Yes Minister, and you'll find out why. Um, so I see great opportunity in this area in terms of helping indigenous communities recognize the rights that have been theirs traditionally, empowering them with more, with more and greater decision-making authority and opportunity. Why? So that they can make decisions that they find to be appropriate and useful for them, for their communities. Um, on that note, I think I will finish up and turn the floor back over to Ian. And again, I would be happy to talk about some of the technology developments in Q&A. Thank you. Very good. Thanks very much. We have time for questions now. If you have a question, please raise your hand, wait for the microphone, and uh, identify yourself and the person that you uh, would like to, to be asking your question to, also your affiliation. We'll take a question in the back, please.
Todd Wiggins, good afternoon. Uh, Ms. McGoudreau, thank you for that uh, conversation. I lived in British Columbia during that period when that, those uh, issues were being raised in the 80s, et cetera. So I have some understanding and appreciation of what you're discussing. But also thank you for the tip on Yes Minister. I had to look that one up and, and see what that was about. Well worth uh, it. Is there an app involved in the technology piece that you're talking about? Is there some way in which a say a plaintiff can contact or find out information about their specific area or a, a facilitated way in which they can be benefited by uh, the new technology that's available on the mobile phones or et cetera? Thank you very much. Um, so did I pronounce it correctly? Is it Silcotin? OK, great. <laughs> Uh, on the technology piece, this is really an extremely exciting time to be involved in the land rights sector. There are a whole variety of different kinds of technologies that are in increasingly making it possible for indigenous communities to map, to register, to record their land rights uh, in ways that can maybe, in um, Bob, just go la 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 la, in ways, in ways that can leapfrog over um, some of the formal sector requirements, uh, maybe making it less necessary to send uh, formally trained surveyors, for example, out to identify parcel boundaries. Um, and, and, you know, of course, there's also new and interesting technology developments around the use of, of unmanned aerial vehicles uh, to gather really high quality, high resolution geospatial imagery. Uh, so the, the app that Ian mentioned that I'm working on right now is um, it's it's an open source uh, product. It's not a proprietary product, and and that you know both has benefits and it has some costs. Uh, but the app allows individuals in communities to use a cell phone to map out the boundaries of their parcels, um, and then register uh, claimants' information and tenure information. Send the information to a cloud-based database. And then the this um, pilot is, has started in Tanzania. The government of Tanzania pulls the information out of the cloud-based database and uses the information to issue formalized documentation. So that's, that's just one model. But there are several different um, interesting uh, technology solutions along these lines that exist in the world. There's a product called Open Title. There's a product uh, called Sola that the FAO has developed. So I think within the next couple of years, you're going to see really kind of a revolution in terms of the ability of local peoples to map and record their land rights without being quite so dependent on the public sector. Very good. Right there. Jason Kuznicki, Cato Institute. Uh, to what extent would you say that New Zealand's Treaty of Watanji is a good model for uh, indigenous property rights? Uh, thanks for the question. And um, uh, I guess I would look at it in the context of Australia uh, against the alternative. And of course, Australia uh, has achieved a degree of recognition of property rights through a, a legal process, whereas the treaty, of course, was struck many years ago and has had a completely different relationship. Now, I'm not familiar with every aspect of what's happened in New Zealand since, but it still remains an open contest around how some of those issues are, uh, that were struck in the treaty have a practical application, particularly with relation to offshore resources and the capacity for Indigenous communities to be able to claim some sort of revenue source or, or share from that. But certainly it's significantly advanced from comparison to where Australia has been because the native title system that we have essentially only gives surface rights. 
Um, uh, people may not be familiar with the Australian property rights system, even under statutory title, you don't have uh, uh, subsurface rights. So all of those mineral resources in particular, which are con key contributors to our national wealth, are owned by predominantly the states uh, and not uh, individuals to be sold in terms of rights-based systems. So um, all we're talking about is surface rights, really. And that, of course, limits the the benefits of forms of title solely to um, particular types of industries rather than recognising that if you were to achieve the sort of full realisation of economic benefits that comes from uh, uh, from a, a, a title that included subsurface rights, Indigenous communities would probably be some of the wealthy. Some of them would be some of the wealthiest people on the planet in comparison to how the resources uh, are divvied up. So, um, do I think it uh, uh, the Treaty of Waitangi provides a better outcome for the Indigenous people? of New Zealand, I think that's uh, undoubtedly the case, not only because the deal was struck so long ago, so they've been able to have a long period of enjoyment of those uh, property rights in comparison to Indigenous Australians, um, but because it gives t uh, benefits beyond surface rights. Um, and uh, 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 yeah, I think that that's probably the fairest analysis you can give. Thank you. It's been many years since uh, we've known and there's been a consensus about the importance of property rights for, for poor people, and yet that's one area where reform has been quite slow around the world. So I wonder uh, if, if either one of you would like to comment about why that is. We've seen reforms in all sorts of areas, from privatization to trade to, to whatever, but property rights for poor people has been a very difficult uh, thing. So I wonder if you could uh, share your thoughts about why that's been, despite a consensus, consensus existing, and what parts of the world do you think there has been the most uh, progress or holds most promise for titling? Okay, I'll be happy to start. Um, so Ian's right. This has been a challenging area to in which to promote reform. Um, so here's the typical thing that happens when you bring up this issue. Uh, you are told that this issue is too big, too complicated, too messy, too political to touch, and so therefore let's just like put it back in the closet and hope it goes away and eventually things will get better and things never do get better. And this issue is at the heart of uh, virtually every development challenge that we face, at least in the United States, uh, that our U.S. <coughs> government development activities are, touch on. So it limits food security. It contributes to conflict. It mm. contributes to environmental degradation. It significantly harms women around the world because women hold such weak rights over land and property. So we, why can't we make more progress? I think the it's big and it's complicated is, is, one air, is one issue because the donors themselves say too big, too complicated, we don't want to mess with it. Um, and then, of course, it's highly political. Who controls the land and the resources is the, is the entity with power. And entities with power typically don't, again, like to give up power. So, so you know, but that sort of begs a question. They've given up power in places um, that that uh, have been touched by or impacted by the doing business rankings, for example. Mm -hmm. So there's been a little bit of improvement on doing business, um, some of the doing business rankings related to property, but that's still a, a pretty um, poor set of rankings. And and maybe it's be so. Here's here's one like I mean this half hard. I this is a tongue in cheek comment let me preface it by saying that but 
you know, maybe there are just too many lawyers involved in the property <laughs> sector. Well, it's a similar attitude in Australia. You know, too many lawyers create there are problems. just too many lawyers. But the laws also create those environments as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's um, you would think that there could have been more progress from doing business. But doing business, I should point out, only looks at, Nick Cleesis will correct me, only looks at commercial transactions in urban areas. It does not at all look at transactions of rural lands or residential properties. So... Um, it only looks at a narrow yeah. band of property. So those are my thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll echo all of those statements um, and add that in the end, you know, and this is where technology obviously plays a role, and I was fascinated by some of the comments you made before about uh, titling systems and how you can create uh, use technology. One of the biggest issues uh, we've had post the recognition of some type of title uh, has been establishing the different uh, ownerships of that title because of uh, overlapping claims between Indigenous communities, uh, who's actually a part of a different group, and there are very different attitudes, particularly where we have an Indigenous population which is so much diminished in comparison to the original uh, uh, people uh, who were there, and um, and just the long process, particularly on a continent the size as ours, to be able to establish those title uh, titling systems. Um, I've, I'll be honest, I think in some cases, and not just in Australia, a lot of it does have to do with power and to do with you know, racial attitudes towards Indigenous communities. And I don't think we can ignore that, as unpleasant as it may sound, um, because part of it is about that power relationship, particularly by a dominant political body uh, politic versus a minority um, group of people and the capacity to be able to use uh, uh, that land for alternate purposes and a paternalistic attitude uh, about whether Indigenous people are actually capable of utilising that land and one of the perennial issues we have after um, even granting different types of title systems uh, and tenure arrangements is uh, an ongoing um, paternalism from governments in trying to interfere uh, with what Indigenous communities can do with the benefits uh, that they derive from those lands and sometimes require them uh, in place of the choice of a, a, a governance arrangement chosen by Indigenous communities uh, to impose a type of governance range about what can happen with that money and what it could be used for into the future um, because they think that they know best. So I think all of those uh, different arrangements um, play into uh, the discussion and why we continue to have problems in that space. But that's I'm an optimist uh, in this space. I think we're heading in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, and part of it is also about Indigenous communities and their attitudes towards their lands themselves. Um, and one of the most uh, significant developments I think we're now seeing locally is an attitude by Indigenous communities about their right to development, which hasn't been at the heart of the conversation in the past. I think it's a natural evolution of the discussion. You know, if you spend hundreds of years fighting for some form of title and ownership of your traditional lands, and then you get it, and then you realize that it significantly diminishes the property rights that are entailed in it, so you can achieve economic development. Um, uh, the, the focus is now shifting towards that right to development. And particularly from indigenous communities, there's now a divide between the groups who traditionally fought for land rights for indigenous communities, um, particularly putting it bluntly, sort of more left-wing inner city attitudes and indigenous communities who want to achieve economic development, which they recognize involves 
you know, managing environmental consequences, et cetera. And of course, there's suddenly a big divide in the attitudes that exist there. Uh, and so I think we're going to see more and more of that division, um, which is going to undermine the potential to exercise the property rights that sit within the title system into the future. And that's not something that's just unique to Australia. Yes, we'll take a question right there in the back. Yep. I apologize, I was late, so hopefully I won't be totally off the subject. <laughs> um, when you talk about indigenous properties... Could you just identify yourself? Oh, please? I'm sorry. Uh, Janice Walt Grenadier, and I have a group called Pro Se America. Mm -hmm. And um, when you talk about indigenous properties, I think that the um, definition of that is changing, and it's changing and adding middle of America almost to it. And it's adding the what is it, 60,000 properties they're going to um, market up in Detroit and make quite a few people homeless. Um, we have a government who has stepped in to a banking crisis and taken over $188 billion to allow the bankers to walk. We have states where their attorney generals have walked in and gotten over $500 million or more. Um, and then the victims, the American people, when they go to court and try to fight their foreclosures with forged signatures, with... Um, could you, just in the interest of time, could I'm you get, ask your question, please? Okay, so how are we going to start discriminating against our victims? The judges and the, the, our victims, the American people, um, how the judiciary is ruling for the banks and for, for big government, and they're the ones getting the salaries, but the American people... Could are paying the salaries of the government, the judiciary. Okay, I think we, we, we got the gist of it, though. This, this panel is really about indigenous uh, communities, and, and uh, I don't know if you, either one of you wanted to, to respond to, to that. Uh, I mean, it fits within the broader discussion around the importance of property rights, I think, in Western liberal democracies generally and the attitude towards it. And uh, one of the reasons, I, I, you missed the perhaps at the start of my speech where one of the things I'm stressing as Human Rights Commissioner is not just the rights of Indigenous people to be able to preserve and protect their property rights, but really for every person to be able to do so as part of the human rights discussion because of obviously the safety and security that comes from people owning their own homes, that builds their capacity to participate in the rest of society and everything else. But I, I honestly can't tell you anything about the, uh, or don't have any insights into the legal situation around um, foreclosure of homes in the United States. Question right here, please. Mike uh, wait for the microphone, please. Mike Kishishian, U.S. Agency for International Development. When the Soviet Union uh, crumbles, uh, what happened around a lot of the, the villages with the land that used to belong to the collective farms, they surveyed them, they divided them into smaller plots, and they gave them to the inhabitants of the villages who were then free to keep them, sell them, uh, trade them for other plots, et cetera. Uh, have, have there been any experiments like that with indigenous land where instead of having a collective right to a big chunk of land, people are given individual rights and then they can decide if they want to uh, keep it as a collective or uh, sell it? I might add to that question, customary uh, arrangements can be very complex in indigenous uh, societies, but how much of a challenge is that in reality 
when it comes to assigning property rights. Uh, and indeed, do property rights actually always have to be uh, based on individuals? No. <laughs> I'm no, glad you said we, that. No, no. <laughs> we have a lot of property that we hold in common here in the U.S., right? And it's as similarly throughout the developed world, whether it's a corporation or um, <laughs> other kinds of real property that's held jointly and severally by, by a group of people. Um, so, Mike, that, that's a great question. Uh, I'm trying to think right now um, where aid is working on. So, so aid has been really um, important in helping to shift the legal frameworks in especially African countries to ensure that customary rights can be recognized under law, uh, whether that's in Uganda or in Mozambique or um, in other parts of uh, you know, Cameroon and other parts of, of Africa, as well as in Asia, too. Um, but then that transition where, you know, if people who originally had, so here's the really, here's a really interesting challenge. Let's say you recognize customary rights in, in, in a particular location. Um, a group in Mozambique gets its duat. Uh, what if that group wants to individualize the rights within that customary parcel? How does that happen? And, and that might happen just through an evolutionary process and has traditionally happened through an evolutionary process in, in many parts of the world. As population rises, people individualize property to internalize the benefit of, of the increasingly valuable resource. But if you're kind of locked into a legal system um, that says we only recognize custom and we only recognize communal ownership, we don't, we don't have a pathway to get you to mm. individualized ownership that's a really difficult challenge. So I think um, in Australia they've introduced, I don't know if it's passed, something called a freehold title bill that would allow, mm. am I right about this? That would, have you've introduced it but it hasn't passed there's a, maybe? There's a system in Queensland that allows for the transfer of a freehold title arrangement. It's really interesting though, because like, think about places, I don't know if you're in Eastern Europe, are you in Eastern Europe? Okay, so the Eastern, so it, you know, if you think about Africa, this happens a lot now, especially in pastoral um, communities like the Maasai, other folks, the Fulani. They have limited pasture lands anymore. The, the rangelands are shrinking because there's strong demand for conservation land, there's strong demand for agribusiness. And so herders themselves are, are informally formalizing their property rights by building fences around. I build a fence around my pasture. And then what am I going to do? Because there's no way, if the legal system doesn't allow me to do what I want to do, I'm going to have to fight you to keep you out. And, and that's really a big challenge. So I think it's very important that we recognize the legal rights of customary and indigenous communities in ways that they want it to be recognized. But I think we also have to recognize that there are very strong pressures on land around the world. And at some point for some communities, there will be a demand to individualize rights. And how that happens is a very tricky process. And, and that, uh, firstly, on the point about whether you can have collective or individual title, I mean, the reality is in, uh, we have huge numbers of uh, uh, title arrangements that operate on a collective basis. In fact, a lot of apartment buildings still operate in Australia. Not all, um, but, and not the majority, but a lot of them operate on the basis of a collective arrangement. It's not as though it's uncommon of these structures don't exist um, through share arrangements, um, what we call company title. Uh, uh, so I, I don't see it as a radical thing to then have an equivalent arrangement with indigenous communities. It's uh, the governance structures that sit behind it to make sure that it reflects their cultural understanding. And that's, in the end, um, the, the key task here is 
there's what the law says and then there's what the cultural attitudes of those communities are. And there needs to be a path, exactly the right word, pathway for if they want to move towards individual title arrangements that they can. And traditionally, the law hasn't always been able allowed them to do that. And that's where you raise the point about what's happening in Queensland during their last state government. Queensland's a state in the north of our country uh, where they allowed for uh, individual title arrangements essentially around towns in what's called uh, dogget land which is essentially old missions when Indigenous people were um, taken off their lands or, or even within their lands and taken to um, missions, etc., um, run by religious groups to take care of them uh, in the most paternalistic way possible. Uh, they, um, uh, that land is called deeded trust land because they were uh, ended up there. Uh, and that there are now opportunities for individual title arrangements so people can get the security to be able to build their own home while recognising that, you know, cultural sites, significant cultural sites might still be controlled by collective governance arrangements because they're collectively um, valued by that community or heritage sites and also land outside of towns which may have some sort of economic purpose uh, or, or, or may not, may actually be unusable land. But sitting behind that is a cultural uh, a discussion that's now going on about even if you maintain a collective ownership, how do you then have one leasing structures to give um, indigenous individuals the capacity to use their land if the collective doesn't want to give up full ownership and also to manage some of the issues around risk. Uh, but also, if you're going to have individual entrepreneurship on collective land, then how do you have a full res proper respect between the entrepreneurship and the reward that the individual secures versus the collective entitlement. So if an individual may uh, say, I want um, uh, rights over this bit of land because it uh, can enable me to develop a tourism business and I might have exclusive, um, exclusive rights or share them with you know, a couple of other people to promote tourism, um, then what are their responsibilities then back to the collective ownership structure through some sort of taxation system that operates within those communities so people aren't seen to be uh, enjoying ill-gotten gains outside of uh, the collective ownership. So there's no one straightforward answer. It has to be sort of a negotiation and an evolution from amongst communities. Very good. So you get question over there. First you and then a few other ones. Yeah. Hi, Bruce McQueen, International Project Resources. I've noticed this uh, problem of uh, not devolving land rights to individuals, even if a communal landowning group does control it. Now, there is government interference, as you say. Um, but one potential solution that I've seen, and this is specifically in the South Pacific, uh, in, in Vanuatu, uh, just last year, that might be an intermediate solution, and that is for the communal landowning group to lease a large portion of its land to a private sector entity, and then that private sector entity, uh, because it's in its interest, it wants to incentivize producers on that land, so it grants long-term contracts, operating contracts to the, to the uh, individual farmers. Um, it's not an ideal solution in, in my view, but have you seen this um, work elsewhere? Uh, 
where the private sector is, uh, yeah, so is this effectively is, an intermediary. It's, it's, a it's a strategy that um, is increasingly interesting under the U.S. government's Feed the Future initiative uh, to identify larger agribusinesses who um, may be able to lease, lease parts of land, not acquire long-term rights to land from, from communities um, to avoid the displacements and some of the social unrest that can come with acquiring long-term rights or ownership rights. So I think people are kind of coming around, Bruce, to the idea that um, if the communities themselves can be the less the lessors, uh, that maybe that's a preferable approach in some situations. And uh, in, in our context, uh, there's a push towards that type of system under, um, and not perhaps not for the precisely the same motivations, uh, in a part of uh, Arnhem Land up in the the middle of our uh, the north of our country, um, but it's actually largely to get around some problems around regulation, where the the uh, and law the law basically says if you want to see any subdivision of certain types of land, then you need ministerial approval at the sort of at the cabinet level, uh, which is incredibly. Uh, restrictive for communities. So one of the reasons they're moving towards a system like that to give it uh, to, uh, to, uh, to to lease out to a private companies to do a big commitment in one hit that they can easily get through ministerial approval and then go and sublease uh, to enable uh, people to be able to do things further. Okay, I promised the, the question in the back and then a, a couple of questions here. Yolanda Rondon, civil rights attorney with the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. I had a question regarding um, what U.S. power, like how much power do they have to intervene into the Commonwealth issues with like Puerto Rico and Guam, in which they're the local governments of Puerto Rico are also infringing on indigenous populations' property. Um, and so often the issue we come into and across is that oh, that's the local Puerto Rico government, they'll decide that. But what power can the U.S., when can they intervene, what can they do? But that is Carol. a very good question I do not know the answer to. Oh, okay. But thank you. <laughs> but thank you. It's a very interesting question. No idea. Okay. Yeah. We'll take a question here, this gentleman, and then in front. Hi, I'm Nick Kleesis. I'm also from the U.S. Agency for International Development. Um, what I wanted to know was, where lies the dividing line between paternalism and individual rights? And it, it gets into this issue of the individual right and the collective right. Uh, an individual would want to have control over his or her own property, right? But maybe the collective right says you don't have that full control, and then you have people in the capital that also have some management role. So, I mean, an example would be, I want to build a house on this spot, and then there might be a form of governance of the collective that says, well, you have to go to the chief. The chief says, no, you can't do it, and there's no appeal. I, I'm just wondering, in, in Australia, are there acceptable forms of, should I call it corporate governance or local governance, indigenous governance, that regulates how those collective affairs are managed? There, there certainly are, um, and uh, they're set up essentially as a form of corporation. Um, uh, that sits a body corporate essentially that sits above uh, uh, different titles uh, of land and uh, it's not a perfect system 
Um, and it's not a perfect system because of cultural attitudes around uh, how you achieve outcomes in Indigenous communities, which can often be very slow uh, and require not sort of, it's not 50% plus one, you need a, a very strong, really almost a complete consensus in terms of taking a position. So we don't have uh, structures where chiefs have you know, the, the power to make final decisions like that. It's, it's much more um, methodical. Um, but where I was talking about paternalism was much more around uh, differential laws and regulations that operate basically between Indigenous communities and what can occur on their title and the rest of the population. And that's what we see. We see that in, uh, in terms of different um, aspects about how they're allowed to develop their land, what they're able to do with it, um, to the extent and to the, uh, also the extent that the dividends uh, from any development is achieved can then be enjoyed um, and decided by that community where, you know, if I develop something, of course, the money goes in my bank account and I make a, ju a judgment call about where it goes. The same doesn't always apply in all Indigenous communities. And to, to use the example before, um, where, you know, at a very high level of government, it is sometimes necessary to get approval for the subdivision or, or sub uh, purpose of land uh, under different title arrangements, such as leasing structures. That really, I mean, my view is uh, has no place. I can understand why it was introduced at the time because there was a concern, and it's still a concern, about the um, skill level of governance arrangements that sit above the use of land uh, to make sure that decisions are made, they're informed and that uh, recognition often that they're final. Um, because one of the big issues that Indigenous communities, of course, rightly have is that they fought so long for their land, they don't wish to give it up and they don't want to see it exposed to risk. And we can't dance around the fact that there has been corruption within Indigenous communities and people doing dodgy things and selling off certain rights or benefits and enjoying, and, and that's at every stage we've had that even at the land rights claim phase where people have misrepresented their entitlement or ownership towards certain, right, uh, and they're, they're the body that should be consulted. They extract a huge amount of money from mining companies and the like. Uh, and then the mining company later finds out they're not even the appropriate person, but they've basically run off with the cash. So that's why a key part of the, the, the work we're doing um, is not just around sort of tenure arrangements and making sure they work for economic development. It's very much at the skills and governance level um, to make sure that we can move beyond this phase uh, of paternalism that doesn't exist for the rest of the community. So Nick, not surprisingly, that's an excellent question. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I think it, it raises a, a curious question around the degree to which fiduciary duties um, should be formally applicable to traditional governance authorities. So the kinds of corporate governance um, rules and regulations that help promote at least some accountability, whether it promotes transparency may be a different question, but you know the, the tools that we can use to improve accountability maybe in some environments would actually be quite useful. And you know, as you, I know you know, they're lacking in, in many of these places. Um, so thank you very much for that. I think it's actually, I think it's a tough question. I'm, I'm only saying this to Nick because because I know where <laughs> I know some of the places where Nick has worked. You know, I <laughs> you know that in there are countries where people will still say things literally like, well, we can't let the peasants enter into those leases because they don't know what they're going to do. Mm. 
we don't know what they're going to do. And maybe that's really a good, well-intended comment, but maybe not so much. Yeah. Right here in, fr in front. Hi, um, my name is Mariam from George Mason School of Conflict Analysis and Resolution. And um, the issue of uh, land ownership. Could you speak up just a little the bit? The issue of land ownership to indigenous uh, people in Africa um, is very complex and more complicated possible from other parts of the world. Um, because um, there's a high percent of the land of in, in Africa still under uh, customer law and, and in the villages under collective ownership. And at the same time, the government has ownership of the land. People, they just, I don't, it doesn't mean people, they own land in, in, in those ca under customer law. They have a right to use the land, but they don't have right to own the land. So most of the land is still owned by the government. Uh, for example, Tanzania. Even though Tanzania recognized the uh, customer law, uh, they say that they recognize customer in papers, but in, in, in real life, it does not look like it. So my question is, even Mr. Wilson, you kind of, kind of, kind of get into it a little bit uh, from the previous question, um, how we can ensure indigenous people um, um, have right to their land ownership, and especially with the, this kind of high level of corruption in the government, and how we can be able to do that. That, that's, that's a big question, but and that's part of what we're trying to grapple with, um, is how do we preserve the enduring um, uh, ownership of, uh, of Indigenous peoples to their lands while also fostering a culture of, um, uh, of use and entrepreneurship that benefits uh, the people. And, you know, first and foremost, you need to establish the title, the, the title arrangement, the tenure arrangements that exist, but also you need to have that properly enforced. Um, and I'm not an expert in, in, in the, the issues that exist in Africa, but um, uh, the absence of that creates uh, huge problems. Um, and uh, then it's to look at what type of structures can sit above the, the formal tenure that it might be owned by uh, a, a collective arrangement to recognise that uh, opportunity for individual <coughs> entrepreneurship or use in the form of um, uh, uh, of you know leasing arrangements or something equivalent to it. And this is not new, unique. I mean, we have our federal territory like the Australia, uh, like DC, which is called the Australian Capital Territory, which operates entirely on the basis of lease structures. Nobody owns land; they just have an exclusive right to use the land for a period of 99 years, I think it is. And they're all actually about to come up, or a large number are about to come yeah. up in the next few years. And of course, these arrangements are not new to, to us; they've operated in London and everywhere else. Um, but so. Uh, but part of it again comes back to the issues around governance because one of the conversations that needs to be had, and it's not one to be led by me, it's to be led within indigenous communities, is making sure those allocations are made uh, and the right structures are made in a fair way that's respectful of the communal values that may exist. Because if uh, there's corruption in the allocation where you know my best friend gets allocated the rights over a certain parcel of land, which might happen to be the particular area that's most fertile or may have you know access to the beach or may have some sort of heritage or cultural value which I can then commercialize it then becomes uh, it fundamentally undermines 
the the confidence in the system from the outset, from within community, even without people like myself doing it. And that's why we have to build that governance and technical skill capacity to make sure that there's a proper understanding and scrutiny of the decisions that are made. But it needs to be done in a way which uh, builds a long-term capacity. And that's not straight of, of those governance ranges. That's not straightforward. And it's not straightforward because often these skill sets, one, don't already exist. Secondly, may not reside within the communities. And because often, uh, as is the case um, uh, with Indigenous populations within perhaps a, a, a developed country like ours, uh, they're often located in very remote locations. And so the skill base may not even exist within the closest significant <coughs> non-Indigenous community. It may reside in capital cities, which may be hundreds of kilometres or miles away. Uh, and so the cost of accessing that sort of intellectual capital to make sure that they make they build their governance capacity uh, is very expensive and can act as a form of barrier. And so we need to look at how we're going to address it. And that's exactly what we're looking at as part of our work um, uh, uh, to achieve um, a, a greater advancement, but in a way that's uh, that's sensitive to cultural values, but is also in the end um, sustainable because it is accepted by the owners as being fair and just. So I'm going to add just a couple things that to that um, response. You're really asking an advocacy question. How do you effectively advocate uh, for change with your governments? And there are many different ways to advocate for change. Um, uh, one, of course, is you can make the business case. Why is it important to recognize these rights? And the business case can be made not necessarily to the land ministry. The business case may need to be made to the finance ministry <laughs> to explain why this will actually be a benefit for the government. Um, it may not need to be made to the ag ministry. More likely, the folks who are going to see the revenue benefits of securing the rights. Um, one thing, one just note for you specifically that you might like to look into, there's a wonderful um, organization called Trust Law that provides pro bono legal services to communities uh, who are dealing with concerns like this. So um, I encourage you to go see the Trust Law website. Um, and then finally, I think technology is our friend in this case. And I again, I think that over the course of the next couple of years, what we're going to see is more and more communities connected in deeper and richer ways who can support each other in advocacy efforts um, and who can begin this process of sort of leapfrogging around the need for government to register and record rights. Not that government isn't, you know, at some point isn't going to be involved in the effort, but um, I think more and more communities are, are already doing the mapping work themselves and will continue to do that. Thank you. This has been a very... Uh encouraging and, and very informative discussion. I think it's been very interesting. I want to thank both of you for, for um, joining us today. And I want to thank all of you for joining us as well. Please help me in thanking both of our great speakers. <laughs>